Welcome to Altamar. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Mooney Jensen, and with me is my co-host Peter Schechter, and together we're going to captain this boat for you for the next half hour or so. Join us, and please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating and a review. We would really love to hear your feedback, and tell us if you like our navigation. So, Peter, as we look through the last few episodes, the crisis in the Vatican, nativism on the rise, climate change unchecked, we noticed a little bit of a downer, a little bit of a negative trend. And to be sure, it does really seem like the only news these days is bad news. So we tried and wanted to find a very good news story, if anything, just for our own sanity and that of our uh, listeners. And our search took us to Ethiopia. I know what you're thinking. So Ethiopia, really? For so long in the West, it used to be associated with war, with famine. Um, We're old enough to remember Live Aid. And here in D.C., especially Brain Drain, an educated diaspora, extremely proud of their country who did not see a future there. Today, the news, however, coming from Addis Ababa could not be more different every day, in part largely to a trailblazing new prime minister. So we're going to talk good news and look at what's going on in Ethiopia and why it's not just uplifting, but important for Africa and for the world at large. To help us do that, we'll be joined by, in a few minutes by Tzedale Lema, founder and editor-in-chief of the Addis Standard, one of Ethiopia's most prominent English-language publications. But look, Muni, before we get into what's happening today in Ethiopia and why it's such good news, it's worth looking just really briefly at Ethiopia's recent history. Now, I just said I'm going to do recent history, but let me start with... <laughs> really old history, which is it's one of the oldest, richest civilizations in the world, and Ethiopians are rightly proud of it. The Queen of Sheba was from Ethiopia, and she married King Solomon. So uh, their history and our Judeo-Christian history has been uh, you know, intertwined since the earliest times, and the earliest Christians were in Ethiopia. It has centuries of culture and writing, but the decades uh, of hardship in the last Uh, 50 years have been really tough. It has created a sense of lost greatness. Ethiopians are really eager to regain their purpose. And the fact is that this time and this prime minister can do that. But if you just think of what they've gone through, they've had a military coup in the 70s, a repressive junta, civil war, foreign interference, war with Somalia, massive famine, ethnic violence, war with Eritrea, political imprisonments. And even when economic growth came, a repressive political environment, state violence, mass corruption, it all left huge swaths of the population dissatisfied and disillusioned. And while tons of educated Ethiopians left the country in droves, um, you know, the overwhelming feeling was that Ethiopia deserved so much better. And that led to massive anti-government protests. And finally, in February of this year, after a brutal crackdown on, on protests, Prime Minister Haile Mariam de Salen unexpectedly steps down. Nobody thought that he would. And in comes Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, the man who's prompted the onslaught of positive headlines that have come out of Ethiopia over the past months. So before we look at what Prime Minister Abiy has been doing in office, let's take a listen to his inaugural speech in which his message is very clear. In the future, Ethiopia will see a time of love and forgiveness. Peace and justice will surface in our country. We want our people to live in harmony and solidarity, and that dream can only be achieved if we wake up and work tirelessly hard. 
For those who sacrificed their lives in difficult times, the human rights activists, politicians, young citizens, and for those who have obliged to face physical and mental chaos, I'd like to deeply apologize. And those security forces who lost their lives while keeping the country with peace, I'd like to appreciate and respect their sacrifices. Our primary task should be focusing on our struggle and also on ourselves. We have to refrain from all the perception, hate, vengeance and tribalism. Tribe, gender, political inclination or religion, though they have advantages, we have to address these differences with love and respect. We have all ignored ourselves when it comes to justice and equality and we have to correct our moral outlook. Justice and love should be our motto. So we're listening to an extremely conciliatory tone, and if anyone was worried that that was just inauguration bluster, so far he has been showing us that it wasn't. He's been very consistent with that speech. Let's take a look at Prime Minister Abi for himself for a second. And here's a man who is half Oromo, half Amhara, Ethiopia's two largest ethnic groups, as I learned from reading up on this podcast, with a Christian mother and a Muslim father, with a master's degree in, listen to this, transformational leadership and change. They should teach that to all world leaders, and a PhD in peace studies and conflict resolution. On paper, at least, if there's anyone qualified to heal Ethiopia's divides, it's this guy. And in practice, he's been doing just that and in kind of a, a, a creative way. So let's briefly run through some of his actions, Peter, in I the mean, past few months. literally just that. I mean, he's ended the state of emergency and freed thousands of political prisoners. He's lifted media restriction and website bans. He's fired controversial, controversial previously untouchable officials over past crime. He's begun partial privatizations of massive and massive corrupt state-owned companies. He's formally ended the war with Eritrea and re-established relations with the country. He's abolished Ethiopian visa requirements for all other Africans. He's named a cabinet, and that's gotten a lot of press, that has full gender parity with 50% women. It's the first in Africa, and one of the few in the world. I mean, let me just remind you, Mooney, that here in the United States, less than a quarter uh, of the cabinet is uh, made up of women. He's freed opposition leaders. He's freed government critics and journalists. He's invited prominent dissidents from abroad to come back home, ending their effective exile. He's made important overtures to the Oromo people. And despite being the largest ethnic group, Oromos have largely been ma marginalized for many, many years. And some prominent Oromo advocacy groups have been labeled uh, terrorist organizations, and he's trying to sort of, uh, you know, create a bridge to to his own to, to his own uh, ethnic group. So the 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 big question here, I think, is that everybody is asking: is can all this good news last? Is he going to be able to make the changes in the face of some of the big challenges? And you know, can the expectations game be drawn out long enough? At this point, everybody has these massive expectations of Prime Minister Abiy, and um, you know, it's it's really that that I think is going to be so important to talk about with our guest. So Tadale Dilema is going to help us today. She's an Ethiopian journalist and political analyst and the founder and editor-in-chief of the Addis Standard, founded in 2011. It's just a few short years, in a few short years, has become one of Ethiopia's most important publications. And before founding the paper, she reported regularly for Xinhua and the European Press Net Network. 
She is on the board of advisors of the peer-reviewed Bandung Journal at the Global South, and in 2014, the Paris-based Pan-African monthly, The Africa Report, named her one of Africa's 50 rising stars. She is a regular contributor to the BBC, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, and others, now Altamar, and we're very happy to have her on the show today. Sadale, welcome to Altamar. Thank you very much for having me. So from the outside, it really looks like Ethiopia is changing for the better and at a very, very quick pace. So tell us, what is the sentiment on the ground? Is it just as optimistic? Um, there are reasons that Ethiopians believe the country is changing for the better. But there are also reasons that Ethiopians are very much worried about what's going to happen, you know, if this change is derailed or if the current trend of ethnic-related violence continues in the country, where would we um, headed at is a, is, a, is a cause of concern for many of us. So it's a mixed feeling. But all in all, there is um, a widespread sentiment of hope that this country is never going to go back to the kind of authoritarianism that we have had in the past, and that if things are going to change, they are going to be for the better. So Uh, right now, the feeling is of a mixed feeling, but uh, in the long run, I think Ethiopians are hoping uh, the country is going to be changing for the better. As a journalist yourself, how has the media atmosphere changed? Is there hope there too? Because I know the Adi Standard has faced its own attempt at silencing in the past. Yeah, the media, you know, the prime minister made a um, repeated attempt uh, in the past saying, making it in fact very clear that the media is one and part and parcel of the process uh, for a change in Ethiopia. Um, he made a lot of promise, promises that um, a free and independent and a vibrant media can be an ally to the government and to the kind of country that you would like to see. So in that regard, we're very much happy and optimistic about a changing landscape in the country. And there is a lot of liberalization right now with a with the opening up of newspapers and magazines coming into the market. Uh, but there is, again, a concern that the move to change the media law is moving very slow. Uh, there hasn't been any you know, concrete discussion so far, whether or not they will be uh, repealing or replacing the media, law with, the media law, which is considered to be very draconian. Um, so we, we will have to wait and see if the move by the government to change this media law is anything concrete, because that would have a significant impact, particularly in enabling the, the independent media to function in terms of uh, uh, you know, uh, getting support, financial support from third parties, which is very essential for media to, to grow. So we will have to wait. But in terms of the rhetoric in, uh, of liberalizing the media, I think the prime minister has it all and we are very much happy about it. Sadali, you know, we, we, uh, we live in, in a world, particularly here in Washington, where we're always concentrating on the bad news. And actually, you know, I find... Uh, the story from Ethiopia to be one that is one of the few positive things that one reads about these days. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is that uh, how significant is it for Ethiopia to have its first ever Oromo prime minister? I mean, th there, there seems to be a not only a symbolism here, but I wanted to ask if he's making progress in having Oromos themselves feel more representative in, uh, in Addis Ababa. 
this is a this is a bit complicated, but um, I, I would like to attempt to give you an answer. Um, first of all, many Ethiopians disagree uh, with the narrative that he's the first ever Oromo prime minister. Uh, we, we have had in the past people who are thought to be from the Oromo um, community uh, coming in, ascending into the helm of the power. Uh, you know, hel- um, the last ki- king himself is uh, is coming from an Oromo family, Haile Selassie uh, the first. But the difference is that in the last 27 years, um, since Ethiopia started following the current federal arrangement, this indeed is the first time that an Oromo is ascending into the helm of the prime minister. Uh, symbolically, it is huge. Um, but also substantively, you know, the Oromo have been the ones that were at the forefront of, uh, you know, demanding a change in the last four to five years, uh, dying by the thousands of them. And uh, a lot has happened in the, in the last four to five years. So this is, in a way, a culmination of uh, the, the call from the Oromo people to see themselves more represented in the federal um, um, position. Uh, but also the call for self-determination, you know, the, the right for them to govern their own region and have a say, more say, in their own region. So to that end, I think there is a widespread acceptance by the Oromo uh, on the ground that Abiy Ahmed is one of their own, you know, to have a head of state or to have a prime minister uh, visiting different places in Oromia regional state where the party that he comes from comes from and speaking to the ordinary people in the language that they identify themselves with is a massive uh, importance for many people. So they feel he's one of their own. But uh, Oromo politics in that country is very complicated. So you see the Oromo people themselves are multicultural in their own in and of themselves. Uh, so it may not be that widely shared by by all of them that he is accepted as one of them. Um, so, but it, it, symbolically, it's it's huge. Yes, I understand, uh, but with its own complications. There are, um, I'm sure, some enemies of the prime minister. What are the challenges that he is facing in the future? We have seen some tensions already. Um, there are multiple challenges. Uh, some are, of course, uh, directly at him, but others mostly are at the system that he's trying to change. If we look at the kind of reform, to use the language of the party itself, that the prime minister has ushered in, although it's a collective decision by the EPRDF as a party, you know, a party of four major parties and five other satellite parties, he has put in the changes, the reforms that we see uh, on, on, on a fast track. I'm not sure if there is anybody, anyone else from the EPRDF itself could have put the kind of fast and at a breakneck speed, the, the reform at a breakneck speed that he personally has put, whether it's the peace process with Eritrea or the reforms within the military and the intelligence, no matter how incomplete they are, he put them at a, an, you know, at an autopilot, at a fast track. Um, so the, the the challenges for these changes are coming both at him personally, but also institutionally. It's not easy to change a system that was ingrained for the 20, 27 years in the past. A lot of people would stand to lose a lot of things and they will not be uh, letting this happen that easily. 
so the, the challenges that he's facing are multidimensional. Uh, but the hope by the Ethiopian people that he is the better choice we have for the time being may be a reason for him to capitalize on and continue with the change that he has already begun. So let me ask you a little bit about foreign and security policy. I mean, Ethiopia is a hugely important country in East Africa, and I, I think there are maybe three touch points that I would love to to deal with. I'm going to just say them all, and then you you pick and choose in what order you want to you want to answer them. I mean, one is I guess the question is the conflict with Eritrea really over? The second touch point that I think is important is is what is Ethiopia doing or continuing to do to help advance regional security? And in particular, I'm referring to the fight against Somali Islamists. And then thirdly, I know that there has always been some tension with Egypt because of the dispute over the Nile waters. So of these three things, tell us a little bit about how you see foreign policy evolving in Ethiopia, which is such a such a foundation stone of East Africa. It indeed is. And uh, Ethiopia has been a beacon of a, a very independent foreign policy among countries in the Horn of Africa and also in the eastern part of Africa. Um, the conflict with Eritrea indeed seemed to have come to an end, but we will we are yet to see the formalization of the agreements that have been signed so far. Uh, yes, indirectly, you know, there is uh, businesses booming along the border between Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea and a lot of uh, visits uh, by head of states and uh, many things, you know, demilitarization of, of the areas in the border uh, between the two countries. Many things have happened, but we're still waiting for the formal institutionalized uh, framework of this peace agreement. However, it's less likely that the two countries will go back to a, a kind of civil war that they have had 20 years ago. So that 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 and it in itself is a relief for for many of us in Ethiopia and also in Eritrea, I guess. Um, in terms of uh, advancing regional security in East Africa, one. Of of the things that, although minus a clear foreign policy that is particularly designed to his premiership, uh, one of the things that Prime Minister Abi has been doing was bringing in regional allies together. You know, bringing is bringing in the voice uh, like uh, putting the same way he's putting the the reform in the country on a fast track. He's also doing it at the regional level. Uh, the discussions between Somalia and Eritrea and Djibouti and, and Somalia and uh, Eritrea and Djibouti uh, have all been sort of the spillover effect that he has initiated with Eritrea as a, as a you know, peace treaty with Eritrea. So he's doing to, to consolidate this rather fragile region, the Horn of Africa, and telling everybody that together, it's only when they, when there is peace that they can really uh, safeguard their independence in terms of their foreign policy. Uh, the region is not free from meddling from from outside world. You know, the what's happening in in the Qatar crisis is affecting also the region. The rush for um, diplomatic prominence between Saudi Arabia and Qatar and UAE uh, for the use of the port and the port Asaf and uh, Somaliland and. It, it, there are interplays in this regard, but he's sending a very clear message that only a peaceful region can safeguard an independent foreign policy. 
So I do believe that this will have um, a significant impact as we go by. Um, in terms of uh, the relations with Egypt, uh, yes, indeed, it is very difficult because Ethiopia is exercising its right to use the Nile water. But I think Egyptians are coming to terms with the fact that Ethiopia is very determined to make use of the Nile water and very determined that the two agreements, the 1929 and 54, I think, um, are no longer valid in the eyes of not only Ethiopia, but the rest of repairing countries, the Nile repairing countries. So Egypt is coming to terms with that. Uh, discussions are still ongoing. Tripatriate meetings are uh, still happening between Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia. We will have to wait and see the results of this. And Ethiopia is also determined to finish the dam. So uh, I do believe at the end of the day, they will reach into some kind of consensus that uh, the Nile water will no longer be a source of conflict in, 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 the, in the repairing countries. So that I, let me ask you a last question, and and it is uh, it's it's a, I guess it's a more philosophical question. It's how did did how did Ethiopia turn? I mean, it it has been for the last thirty years, you know, the crux of a lot of uh, negative stories and a lot of disappointing moments, and somehow. Um, Something has happened, and we have suddenly the, this this prime minister who is bringing at least some hope. I mean, as as you say, one should be cautious. But you know, I think I'm thinking of places whether it's Uganda, Angola, Cameroon, or even outside of Africa in Venezuela or Burma. Tell us a little bit about what happened in Ethiopia to bring this change. Well, first and foremost is uh, the. The, the people of Ethiopia say, you know, they have had enough of the the kind of authoritarianism that uh, we've lived in the last 27 years. And it's not just the last 27 years. You know, we have a history of living under repression ever since a modern state was formed 120 years ago or so. Um, there has never been a, a democratic uh, government uh, that reigned over the, the people of Ethiopia. Uh, what happened is the last four to five years the protest at a grassroots level that started in Oromia regional state, uh, they have started, you know, it's just students have started to come in mass into the streets and, and to just say enough was enough. Um, and that was followed by another protest in the, in the second largest regional state, the Amhara regional state. And that has posed a very significant threat for the EPRDF as a party. So it's this realization, you know, the protesters were not dying out. They were, they started as a talk to us first, but they went on saying, we don't want to see you anymore because uh, there was nothing changing. And the people stopped being afraid of death uh, because they had nothing to lose anymore. So it was the, the people at one end who have nothing to lose at all. And it's a government at the other end, which has uh, everything to lose. Uh, but thankfully, I think the EPRDF came to its own senses that this was not sustainable anymore. So they have realized that unless and otherwise they change course, the country was facing uh, a dark force that the kind of which you would have never seen in any other African countries because we are about 80 ethnicity groups in that country. So having a collapse of this kind of system is disastrous. So they realized that if they don't change anymore, they're not going to sustain governing the Ethiopian people anymore with, you know, using uh, the power of the gun. So it's that realization that created or gave birth to uh, a few reformers, uh, including the prime minister, uh, a few reformers to come forward and start 
you know, begin to adopt the language of the ordinary people on the street and uh, and say, you know, we are with you. We will be changing. So it is that uh, realization. Some say it's a survival mode, but I think many of them would realize that they're no longer going to be, you know, telling the Ethiopian people um, or, or returning back to that kind of authoritarianism after they have uh, calmed them down now. There is that uh, determination among many of those reformers now. So that is what 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 brought in the, can, the current leadership. And the leadership that we often say Team Lama, you know, Lama is the president of the uh, Romia Regional State, which has facilitated for the prime minister to come into power. So we, we just generally call them Team Lama. So it's the, the birth of a reformer within the party that has brought this change that we see today. Sedali Lema, thank you for joining us on Altamar in this really fascinating and hopeful story. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So there you have it, Peter. Don't get too excited, but overall, Ethiopia is indeed a very good news story. Look, it's a good news story, Mooney, and it really fits into something that we're seeing in a number of countries in Africa at this time of upheaval in the world where there's so much bad news, the continent is really giving us some serious pockets of promise and things to smile about. Ghana is obviously a shining star with a really solid democracy, staggering growth rates. Its economy is growing something like 60%, has grown 60% since 2000. Senegal is making some of the world's most rapid advances against hunger and seeing its living standards soar. Kenya has become home to a booming tech startup. Nairobi, Nairobi is now named the Silicon Savannah. And of course, the whole continent has just formalized a massive free trade agreement. It, it does seem that a disproportionate amount of the very little good news that we have in the world is coming out of Africa. That's right. And even for places where that isn't the case, Ethiopia under Abi could serve as a kind of case study like Uganda, Angola, Cameroon, where there is a single authoritarian leader um, or a party that's been in power for a really long time. His experience could, and of course it remains to be seen, provide a sort of blueprint for a positive domino effect and a blueprint blueprint too for transition to a strong healthy democracy for healing divides for atoning for past injustice i guess other continents could um really benefit from that as well so moral of the story we should all you and me mooney and our listeners keep an eye on africa especially in these times when a breath of fresh air is so needed that's it for altamar this time we'll see you next time <laughs>